Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford. And I'm your other host, Matthew Rodriguez. And we are joined today by two returning guests uh, that we're very excited about. One of them is writer, culture critic, and Twitter personality. Hi, it's Anthony Oliveira. Hi, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And we also have today, for the second time, um, Buffy writer and producer... Jane Espenson, hi. Hi. Um, we're so we're so glad to have both of you back. Um, oh, don't pretend you care that I'm here. How, <laughs> <laughs> how dare you? With, with Jane Espenson in the the not room, I guess, in the the ether with us. Um, just before we started, I was telling Jane how she is like one of my childhood heroes. That like uh, I made in grade ten, we had to make a list of our heroes, and she was in my top five. So this is a really big deal for me. <laughs> um, this is. <laughs> really cute and seeing you like yeah it's very precious anthony um uh you will have to keep me on task because i'm gonna want to talk about like Battlestar and like gilmore girls (laughs) and like all the other amazing things you've done so you're gonna have to keep reining me in that's a that's a host job today i think um yeah because you know i'll answer that stuff (laughs) (laughs) so jane anthony's actually guest hosted a few times and that's always like i tell him i'm like you need to keep me on track but usually i end up having to keep him on track so (laughs) (laughs) um yeah today Oh, I was just thinking, I was like, oh, like, what's your Buffy origin? But you both have already told us that. Um, Today we're here to discuss Season 5's Triangle, an episode Jane wrote. Yay. Yay. Um, and, uh, and before we started, we were both talking about how Triangle is just an episode that we love to revisit because there's so many good dynamics in it. And it's like chock full, but it's also not like a very heavy, sad episode that you can't just rewatch casually. Yeah, um, Jane, tell us why you picked, because, <laughs> to, like, lift the veil, I, like, basically, I'm like, Jane, what season five episode that you wrote do you want to be on for? Um, and Jane, why did you pick this one? It's j- just seeing the name Triangle makes me smile. It was one that <laughs> I just had fond memories of. I hadn't watched it in years. I I had forgotten how much stuff was in this episode. I'd forgotten that we see... Spike offering Mannequin Buffy the chocolates. I forgot <laughs> this is where the world without shrimp happens. Um, and I, but I remembered just from seeing the title that there was a lot of good fun in there, not too heavy, um, uh, but one I remember being satisfied with. So, cool. Gonna, cool. I'm gonna pick that one. Cool. <laughs> you really specialize in these episodes. Like you don't often at least in the run of Buffy have the huge like dramatic tent pole like the body episodes but you like whenever I want to show a friend who has never seen the show an episode it's always one of yours it's always like this one or like earshot is it harder almost to build these like standalone episodes that sort of have their own internal logic and don't like rely on like these superstructures as much or is like there's something very formalized about the way these episodes are built to me when I came into Buffy, I had only done half hours. I'd only been on the staff on half hours. Um, so this was uh, what I had done was joke writing. And so I was most comfortable doing comedy. It, you know, the second episode I wrote was Gingerbread, which was pretty heavy. That, and, and I sort of, that's where I started to learn there are other ways to be entertaining. Um, there doesn't have to always be a joke, but it was still where I was most comfortable. Uh, so I always gravitated toward those because I knew that's something I could deliver. Um, I wasn't yet confident that I could do a thing without 
you know, at least some levity to it, and the really heavy ones didn't didn't appeal to me as much. In terms of the structure and the formal aspects and building a, a one-shot, on Buffy, the process was very much top-down. It was, we literally found it very hard to even have a room if Joss wasn't there. Ideas and structure and everything, uh, less so in season six and seven, but definitely still in season five, were very much Joss. So the structure of this thing, I can take no credit for. The the <laughs> beach was essentially handed to me, which is the uh, you know the main beats of the show. So I was just putting putting flesh on those bones. Did they come to you? Do they come to you as comedy episodes? Like like you could have the beats of this episode and still have it be pretty serious. Does it? Is it you that turned it into the, the this comedy? This very arch. Like one of this, <laughs> one of the things I love about this episode is is the pleasure it takes in language and like is it is that yeah. is that built into like when you're assigned sort of this top down script or is that just Jane Espenson putting that specific kind of flesh on these specific kind of bones? Very good question. Half and <laughs> half, I'd say. Uh, pleasure with language is my is my hallmark. I used to think I was a chameleon that people <laughs> wouldn't be able to tell it was my no people could always tell it was my episode and I think. <laughs> uh, language and wordplay my training with as a as a linguist and that that shows um but the episode was always conceived of as a light humorous one a lot of the jokes in any buffy script are just things joss said in the room as we were breaking it um so you know he would he would say something funny succulent babies or whatever and we'd all write it down. <laughs> so the tone was very joss definitely set the tone that this would be a lighter one if it had been assigned to a different writer um, it probably would have, it would have definitely been different. And, um, you know, if Marty wrote this, I think it would have had more heart and tears. Um, you know, if Doug had written it, it would have had, uh, an equal number of jokes, but different jokes. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's totally fair. Well, I was going to say, you know, we talk a lot about like if, if, um, Buffy were updated for now. And one of the things I think about is just like how no one does, 22 episode seasons anymore really <laughs> and i always like th i think about this episode a lot when i think about the changing um landscape of television and how like you might have even had to have sacrificed a full episode like you know if you were doing like a 10 or a 13 episode season you know because it doesn't feel like it's on the main train track of this of you know there's very little glory in it or anything like that, but it's such an, a great episode that people return to, and and I I still love twenty two episode season shows like I, that's what I watch, you know. No, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I was on Once Upon a Time up till it ended last year, and um, that was a twenty two episode season. But you're right; they're getting scarcer, um, and I love the non main arc episodes, mm -hmm. the one off. Those are my specialty because one thing I love delving into characters that don't normally get the spotlight just because it's a field that hasn't been plowed before. Love that. And I love finding depth in a place that hasn't been mined. Oh, my goodness. That's a different metaphor. An unmined mind. <laughs> um, They're going to take away your degree now. <laughs> uh, actually, one of the things I love about this episode is the the fact that like, this sort of quality you're talking about of... Um, characters haven't been touched but it's also an episode that sort of thinks very carefully about pairing off characters that don't get paired off like yeah. what does Anya have to say to Willow but also what does Spike have to say to Xander there's even that a scene that I don't even remember having seen before 
of Buffy and Tara just having a one-on-one conversation. It's like, oh, I don't actually know what their conversations are like. And it was nice to sort of play those textures here. I'm, and again, that's, that would be Joss, but I'm, and I'm sure it was something he was doing very consciously. That was a thing we thought a lot about. And I, I love being on shows that think about that. Battlestar did that too, of what two characters have we never seen have a conversation? Yeah. What would they have to say? Battlestar was amazing because the show, the backstory was so uh, dense and layered that any two characters would have some beef. Something. <laughs> 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 Uh, and Buffy wasn't sort of built that way. Um, so you had to really think, yeah, what would Willow Terra conversation be like? Um, how do Spike and Xander just sitting down? Um, there's, yeah, I love, I love that stuff. Um, well, and yeah, I, th- I, I wanted to get back to the question of, will we continue to have episodes like that in a 10 episode season world? And I think it's harder, but it can still be done if what you value is, the rhythm of drive, 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 take a breath, drive, 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 and I, I think that can still be useful even even when the when the territory is a little more valuable. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. <laughs> well, we start this episode with a two-person conversation, and it's Xander and Anya talking about Buffy not being able to keep a man, kind of, which <laughs> I, I felt was a very ungenerous conversation. <laughs> maybe it's her, right? <laughs> I know, maybe it's her conversation from, like, her best friend in the world. After he himself lost someone who moved to L.A. Right? I, I can't disagree. I, I buy it definitely Anya saying, my goodness, young lady, maybe it's you. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I, I was actually surprised on rewatching it that Xander didn't d- defend Buffy a little more vigorously. I reread just now my original first draft, and that scene, it still starts with that scene, but the scene's a little different. It is, uh, let me see, it's much shorter, so a lot of that conversation wasn't there. Hmm. Um, and it was. Anya's looking at Xander's hand and says, Funny fingers, and he says, Are not. And she says, mm, maybe not. And second thought, they have no entertainment value at all. And he says, check out this elbow. They named Macaroni after it. Uh, and <laughs> just he's, She says something about, like, uh, maybe I should go. Don't go. Okay. Riley isn't coming back, is he? It's sad. Oh. And Xander says, I haven't talked to Buffy in a couple of days. I wonder how she's dealing with it. Cut to the nun. Um, oh. So it it was much. It was a much more underwritten, probably criminally under underwritten. Um, mm. It's just sort of their feeling bad about um, Buffy suffering, and it's making them cling closer to each other. Yeah. Right, and it's about mundanity, right? Also, in yeah. thinking about it, like the episode ends with Xander's uh, arm being broken, so there is like a strange like mirror thing happens. It's an episode that is about this relationship that is endangered that actually ends up, like, realizing that <laughs> when Olaf breaks his hand. It's um, all about Xander's arm in my original one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and right, and it's right after Anya broke her arm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Can I ask, like, immediately with that joke of cut, smash cutting to what seems to be Buffy and the Wimple, uh, what was, what was, how did the conversation emerge that Buffy's dealing with the trauma of Riley leaving would be played for comedy? Because it does end up becoming sort of like Sarah Michelle Gellar does this amazing like comedic crying by the end of the episode. <laughs> and it's like, 
how did that emerge in the writer's room? Those kinds of things, again, would, would very much be from Joss. Um, and I remember that's one of the few really clear memories I have of the breaking of this episode. Because, you know, it's been a while. Uh, <laughs> it's Joss going like, and then we cut to a nun <laughs> with a little <laughs> bit of long hair. And um, just, I, it was the take he wanted to take with it. And I think, you know, in a season, as you pointed out, with a, with a lot of uh, darkness in it, um, and when we knew we were headed towards Spike, as you can see in this episode, you want to sort of get the Riley thing off the table, clear the table for Spike um, with as deft a touch as possible. Um, yeah. I So in my, in, my, in my notes, Jane, I say, you monster a lot in all caps. <laughs> because, <laughs> so I can never get past cute scenes like this knowing the couple's future, you know? Like, I'm like, oh, he says that he'll do the big bomb clock, but he doesn't. <laughs> like, eventually we get to a point where he does exactly what she asked him not to do in the beginning of this episode. Um, and things like that. How, like, did you guys know Anya and Xander were going to break up? Or was that kind of like, season five was just they will get engaged, and then, like, you discuss season six when you discuss season six? I think so. Uh, okay. I, I don't believe I knew. Okay. Um, sometimes there were things we we didn't know, um, but uh, no, I I think that came later. I think this was still uh, like they're our happy couple. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're a happy couple too. Uh, so I do love. Yeah, I do love the cut to Buffy with the nun. Um, so she saves him, and I pointed out, Jane, you. You taught young Ian what the word abjuring mean, because I had never heard of that before until <laughs> this. And it's like one of the words Buffy taught me, not unlike corporeal. <laughs> uh, I don't know that I knew abjuring. That was a word, again, in that same memory that I have, Joss saying, how's the, so uh, with the abjuring the company of men, how's that abjuring going? Uh, that was the thing he said in the room where you just write it all down and put it in the script. <laughs> <laughs> like I, even what when was... I watched this, I thought about that. I was like, "Oh, this is where I learned that word." <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't come up much. Yeah. One thing I always remember about that scene is like the nun's single slice of hair that's showing. <laughs> yeah. It's like this very coquettish nun. <laughs> yeah. It, it it looks a little different than I pictured it. I didn't realize the wimple was gonna be so <laughs> constraining that it would. That you'd have to work to get that lock of hair out of there. <laughs> it really, because do, it does look like it's not a mistake. It's like her statement. It's like, I'm going to have this. She's like a, a, a feminist nun who's like, I'm going to show my hair. Yeah, I, I think it was my mistake in putting in that line. She let me try on her wimple later, which meant they could put her in a wimple instead of just a headdress, which meant it was harder to get the hair out. So uh. sometimes yourself um and you don't even realize it till till you're on set going wait what or worse in the editing room going wait that's not what i pictured <laughs> it's the temp the temptation of the word wimple was just too strong yeah <laughs> Ooh, that exactly summed it up that, that, that's the summary of my writing life but i got tempted by this word <laughs> um so after we have the nun scene we go to buffy training um with Giles and they short they quickly mention Riley but they mostly talk about Giles's trip to the to England that is upcoming to go talk to the Watchers Council and 
Buffy makes sure that she says that she doesn't want him bringing up Dawn at all. Yeah. Um, because at this point, we know Dawn's the key, but only really, I think, Buffy, uh, Joyce, Giles, yeah. and Joyce know. Yeah. Yeah. And we're setting up the end of the episode, right? Where Dawn realizes, finds right. out too, right? It's, the payoff yeah. is that... What was your, what was your like, roadmap for who found out and when? Did you have one in the in the writer's room? No memory of that. There probably was one, but I, I don't know it. Uh, uh, I didn't even remember that that was in this episode. I was, <laughs> I was watching it for the first time. Oh, right. Don't <laughs> know yet. Oh, my gosh. Not finding out. Yeah, no, that's all that's all new to me. Um, but, uh, again, I, I like the way on Buffy, a light episode still will have um, just enough of the forward-moving big plot yeah. that that there will be little little bits of forward movement uh, to yeah. keep that going. It doesn't just get pushed to the back burner. What was it like writing Dawn? Like, what was it like? I mean, because she has to emerge as a full character, basically without you knowing what she'll look like on screen, right? Like, what what was breaking her like? What was like finding that voice like? Like, did you know? Did you have Michelle Trachtenberg in your head, or did you not even have? even a body for her when you were writing this. We did not. We did not know who it was going to be, which is, if you write a pilot, you have the same thing. Where, or actually, most guest starring roles. Like we didn't know who would play the troll either. You know, you see, you write them not knowing. Yeah. Um, but there, that it's interesting you should ask. Um, <laughs> the first thing you do when you create a new role like that is you write sides, which is the term for the, um, the scenes that are going to be used as the audition pieces for the people who come in and read for the role. So you write two scenes for the character. Usually you write a funny one and you write a more serious one. Um, and the actors prepare both of them and come in and read them. Um, and I was assigned to write the sides for Dawn. So I wrote the first side. Then one of them that I happened to write was like Buffy confronting her because she'd been taking Buffy's stuff. And I was thinking of it as just like a sister steals another sister's stuff. Uh, and Joss seized on that as like, oh, that's actually an interesting character trait. So uh, Don's uh, little shoplifting thing. Um, oh, right. Things I had put. Yeah, because she, she takes people's stuff later. Um, <laughs> that was just stuff I had put in the sides to give them something for the sides to be about, just so there would be something for them to talk about. Um, so I sort of just you know, wrote these little scenes, they didn't really establish a terribly distinctive voice, but they just sort of established, okay, this is a little sister who, um, you know, is precocious, but uh, not not in any way, like, extraordinary. Doesn't seem to be powered, doesn't seem to have a big secret. Um, sort of, in, and uh, Joss liked the sides and used them and took took the, the little um, stealing thing from them. Uh, and Michelle Trachtenberg was just one of the people that came in to read. Uh, Doug Petrie, uh, my buddy at the show, fellow writer, had already written for her because he had written the movie Harriet the Spy. Oh, right. oh shit. I didn't realize that. Yeah, and she was like 11 or 12. Uh, so he had already known her and worked with her and uh, could vouch that she was great. Um, Joss loved her immediately. I want that girl on my show. And, of course, you don't know right away if you're going to get him because they could have other offers from other other right. places. Right. And I just remember him saying, I want that girl on my show. You know, Was she different at all on screen than she you thought she'd be on the page? No. Um, well, 
That's an interesting question. You don't have a full 3D picture of them when you write the sides. You're just like, this is, it's a pair of pants lying on the floor, and then an actor's going to step into them. <laughs> so, you know, you don't really know what Don's going to be until there's an actress playing it. And then, of course, then you start writing toward her. Right, right. So then you start right. writing for, for her particular style. I think that is, I mean, that even seems to me like something that would happen definitely with Anya, because Anya changes so much over time, depending on how Emma Caulfield inhabited her, you know? <laughs> That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I love characters that change. Um, Tara also. I loved giving Tara lines that, that aren't, that show sort of an emerging from her shell. Yeah. Love that. Um, yeah, I love, love letting characters change. And they change, they can change toward the way the actor naturally plays them or against if you want to make the character stretch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um so also I know so I know that we like kind of touched upon the Buffy Dawn scene, but Buffy saying when Dawn comes in and is like what you doing and she's like playing soccer. I <laughs> Jane like it's crazy to think that like you like you wrote that, and I say that's like without realizing it's a Buffy reference. <laughs> I, had, I lived with a guy that was like we were really close friends, and he would always be like, just to like uh, tease me annoyingly, he'd be like, "Ooh, what are you doing?" And I'd always say playing soccer. Um, oh, so funny. much so that that would be his joke when he would walk into my room. He'd be like, "Don't tell me you're playing soccer." <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny i'm looking at the script to see if uh if that was in my first draft. i don't think it was oh really <laughs> could be a jossism or that could be just be something i added later also i love that you i love that you have these scripts like saved and ready to go on your computer <laughs> jane that's impressive it's I I because I'm always like, what do I have to offer that we that won't just be all of us going like, yeah, I watched that yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> so I I, I want to bring in something at least that I can supply. Um, did you? This is is this the episode the first time we hear that Anya used to be human? Is this the first time it is spelled out? No. When? No. No. Did no. you always know that about Anya? Did, was she con- sort of conceived? As, I've always wondered this. Was she always a person that became a demon in your head, or was she a demon masquerading as a person? I don't even know if that is a thing I would know, even if I remembered. Because that could definitely be the kind of thing, we often had this happen, where some people in the room someone, assume one thing and some people assume another, and then you get a discussion of, well, wait, she was human first, right? And other people going like, no, vengeance demon. Demons built into the word. Like, no, she was clearly always a demon. And uh, so we... we it was probably one of those things that had just never been discussed until we needed to discuss it. Um, oh. Which also, remi- also reminds me of a question I have, I mean, later on in my notes, but um, you talked about last time you were on about when you like create a character for the episode and that character is used again. Um, did you create yeah. Olaf? Because he's so tied into Anya's past, did you create him or was he a character that you were kind of like told to write into the episode? I was told to write into the episode, but according to the rules of the Writers Guild, that means I created him. Oh, nice. nice. <laughs> <laughs> right. On the first script where he appears, you created the character, and then if that character reappears, you get a character payment, even if even if he appears in an episode you don't write. Nice. Oh, all right. Yeah, so you want to create, you know, Tara. I know. Right. Jay, right. ever Are since you, you told us that, I think about that all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> it's also it also influences the pitches in the room. Notice if if anyone if you're ever in a writer's room and somebody's going, you know who we could bring back? Sometimes <laughs> the ten, the next thing they're going to say is a character they created. <laughs> uh, is Jonathan was Jonathan tech like legally yours? <laughs> like were his appearances? Jonathan's in the pilot in the original pilot presentation. He's in there. Oh, so that's just pure that's pure awesome. affection of yours. Yeah, just love Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. So, so I do want to go to the scene where they talk. Where they it's the first time that Anya and Willow kind of have it out when Giles puts Anya in charge while he's away in England, and then Willow offers to help, mm-hmm. and they kind of put Xander in the middle. Yep, creating the triangle of the title. <laughs> um, but you guys had definitely been setting up for this, right? Like I felt like we had a lot of little magic box scenes. Uh, in the prior episodes, like in the prior episode, Into the Woods, is where Anya and Willow have their little fight. Where Anya's like, "I know what you say about me behind my back." That Anya, she's newly human, strangely literal. Um, and I feel <laughs> like you, you guys were definitely like, it's like an earned fight almost. Right. Um, yeah, I was wondering. What, so was that also plotted out? Because I feel like this season. I mean, clearly the theme is family, which we did an episode with that title. Um, and I cry at the end, but, uh, <laughs> how much of that was met? Like, was it, was that on purpose where it was like, Joss was like, Hey, we're going to have an Anya Willow fight episode. Like, I feel like every character is coming together. And like you said, in this episode, we do get scenes of like Buffy and Tara being friends. Um, right. how much of that was, uh, was like just you like writing it or was mapped out or both or. Well, it was definitely mapped out, but I, I can't really speak to at what point, it was decided on because sometimes that's a like oh we'll build see an episode like this you don't really build to because it is as you say you know it's a lighter one it's not carrying a ton of the freight for the season so it's more likely that it was just like um we need a light one here what would be fun hey you know what we've been building um is on on Anya Willow conflict what if we'd really dug into that um you know, it may sometimes it's driven as much as by like, hey, Anthony Stewart Head's got a thing. We're going to lose him for half this episode. Oh, you know what we could do? <laughs> so more, more than 50% of the time, I would say episodes come out in the moment as, as you're going along. An episode like this, probably not hugely, not a lot being done to lay the groundwork for this one. You, you, you grab for the low-hanging fruit. You look around and you say, what, what has... What could we develop from what's already been laid down? Hmm. One of the things I like, I mean, I like scenes where it feels like most of the people on the cast are in one room and this is one of those magic box scenes. But I I really like actually, not not only is Xander in a comfortable position, but I like how uncomfortable Tara is with (laughs) with it too. Because I think that there's an expectation that Tara would just back Willow. But Tara is really so low conflict that you can see how much she wants to exit stage right as the drama <laughs> unfolds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I mean, she's a very rational person. I, uh, and I feel like Tara wouldn't blindly take someone's side unless they were a hundred percent right. Like she's, she's yeah. very loyal, but she's also just, just like logical. Well, that's, that's, that's the, that's the interesting thing is that I think that she sees that Willow is being unreasonable too. And she yeah. can't stay because she knows that Willow is not actually upset. She just doesn't like Anya. And no matter what, it's just going to upset her no matter what Anya does. Right. 
yeah, and that's just like, ugh, it's exhausting. I'm with her. <laughs> and also, like, <laughs> simmering under this scene is Willow is again pushing the rules right like willow is doing something with magic yet at these incredibly low stakes willow is doing something with magic she's not supposed to be doing and tara is nervous about that like this is this will become a running kind of scene they have together right so (laughs) even in this like making a ball of sunshine dark willow is already foreshadowed it's true i mean she is she's not she's being a little um fast and loose with the rules too of just like You've got to compensate the shop. You're taking some valuable stuff. Uh, yeah, I I have sympathy on both sides. Anya is always a pain, and <laughs> Willow is being a bit of a scofflaw. A what? <laughs> you need more words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just teaching me lots of words here, Jane. Great. Um... I would say let's... Let's skip the the Don Buffy scene because we did talk about it a little bit to go to the box of chocolates with Spike scene. I so I found this time watching it, and I hadn't thought of this before, and I'm curious what you think, Jane. Um, I, I felt like it a little bit paralleled, like he's he's practicing trying, right? So like he's practicing <laughs> how he would like show emotions and apologize by having the box of chocolate doesn't go well. But, like, realistically, he's talking to himself. And I feel like it kind of reminded me of him in the basement in season seven, where it's yeah. just, like, he's having these conversations all alone, sometimes getting worked up. And it's a funny parallel, since, like, here he doesn't have a soul, but in season seven, it's because he has a soul that he's, like, doing that. Does he, though, does, hasn't he always kind of had a soul? <laughs> he loves Drew. Uh, I feel like he is the most soulful of soulless vampires you know when we had james on he actually said that he felt he cheated when he played spike because he always played him with a little bit of a soul yeah what did it mean to you to say that he hadn't like what did that actually end up shaking out as meaning to you when you had to write a character that had no soul like what does (laughs) once and for all what does that mean for someone not to have a soul empathy i think um that's that's what i would boil it down to is and, and even then, even when he was soulless, he he felt bad and went off to get his soul back, um, which which suggests some empathy. I, I don't know. I think Spike is a very special vampire, and, and even who who always has. I mean, he was a poet. Maybe that poet's soul is pretty resilient. Mm. Um, he uh, he just he seems to feel things very deeply. And yeah, I I've always thought of a soul as a, a conscience. Which is, you know, it, right. it, feels more, it feels more to me like a conscience than than anything else. I guess that maybe that's a better answer than empathy, although they're clearly related. Um, but I just always—it's no fun to write a character. I think who is just has no feeling, uh-huh. self or others, um, and so Spike always has that. And and when I look at that chocolate scene, it's harder. He's he's less sympathetic now than he was when it was originally shot and aired i think i think calling her a bitch even the mannequin and yeah. hitting her in the head is really a little disturbing more disturbing yeah. than it was at the time when it was a little more comedic um but he he de- he buys back so much when he picks up those chocolates and tucks the <laughs> back in love that and tries again and you see like 
oh, there's something interesting here that isn't even talked much about now about like, okay, what do you, what do you do with the, um, with someone who does something that seems unredeemable, but it's dying. Right. Well, we've talked, we've spoken a few times and, and you just brought it up about like, we now have the knowledge of where things eventually go. And I see here in this, what's like played up for laughs scene is like the dark kind of seed of whatever is happening between him and Buffy will ultimately end in him really physically harming Buffy and him uh, kind of imploding or self-destructing. And what he's trying to do is he's he's almost like replaying the probability odds. He's like, okay, in this scenario that happens, Spike, you snapped, but is there another way that this can go? He's like role-playing until he doesn't explode. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this does, it is very much like what happens later. And in both times he regrets it and sets about trying to improve himself, um, which which is, I guess, why why we like Spike despite everything yeah. is he 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 hates himself as much as we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, I do love this kind of er, this kind of er Buffy bot in the mannequin. I feel like when we might not have even thought of the Buffy bot if we hadn't had this moment first. You know, this this does definitely feed that like oh right remember that time when spike wanted was he making a fake buffy like what if he really could these are those are all yours too right like this scene is yours the robot i was made to love you is yours and intervention is yours so like there's a through line that you sort of nourished the buffy bot into existence over like three episodes yeah yeah sort of i mean i just love um spike trying so hard to uh get have love Buffy but also be worthy of Buffy which is the more interesting part love that yeah huh. oh right he helps the disaster victims later <laughs> <laughs> nobly yeah. does not feed on them right <laughs> yeah and if I get why he wants credit for that that's hard stuff that's like <laughs> if you know there's a cheese disaster and there's cheese everywhere <laughs> and some of it is crumbling out <laughs> Have no use to anyone, and you want me to not eat that cheese? <laughs> this is a great cheese metaphor. I'm very into it, Jay. <laughs> and then, and then after that, we kind of go back to a Willow Anya scene, and it's the, it is the one where she's first where she first has the cunning daylight burglar line yeah. um, about stealing. Yeah. Um, and then from there, we go to Anya kind of charging her for everything she uses by the item. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also, Jane, I wanted to ask you. So, the magic box in this scene, and this episode, and in the episode prior to it, Into the Woods, it's like very decorated for the holidays, but it's never mentioned. Uh, was there like going to be an episode that was a holiday episode? Was there going to be like, was there a scene that was cut where they mentioned that? Or was it just you guys being like, well, let's decorate the shop because they would decorate a shop? Oh, I think it was the latter. I think okay. it was, just, you know, you're not even so much us, but um, set deck. The department looks at the calendar of when's this going to air and just tries to make it look appropriate to the air date. Oh, okay, because I, I did really like that. Because in Into the Woods, I don't think in this in this episode there is one, but in Into the Woods it's like celebrate and it just lists every holiday and has some fake ones thrown in there. I don't know if that was like a cute <laughs> addition. <laughs> like Grofnar's Ascendance. I yeah. Think yeah. The... <laughs> well, we know Giles loves to decorate, does, you know. Right. He yeah. loves his Halloween decorations. He's very, and he loved his uh, his wizard's hat. 
He's a very showy... He's a costume queen. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. He even came around for Thanksgiving. He ended up hosting. (laughs) So this is where we get the troll. Yes. This is where we first see Olaf. And we get Willow's amazing line, you're not a little ball of sunshine. Was that in the original (laughs) script? Because it's so good. That was Joss. That was... um, Actually, I had written the first draft already, which... The, the notion of what spell she was doing was not something that was spelled out in the room. So, and I'd always had this idea of like, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to make a little artificial sunshine? But, uh, so I was like, oh, this is my chance to get that <laughs> note in a script. Because that was always something I was pitching as like a great big Buffy story of Buffy figures out how to make sunshine. And uh, so I put that in the first draft. And it was when I was getting notes on the first draft that Joss was like, you know what you could do? And he pitched that. <laughs> way he pitched it was like, poof, the troll appears. And Willow says, you're not a little ball of sunshine. And <laughs> uh, it, it, does, it doesn't quite work the way that it's structured. So it became that he's not a little ball of sunshine as the blow to the scene, which, is, uh, which works really well. How early did you decide that he was going to be Anya's ex? Like, was that was that the concept? Or was that like a late discovery in working on it? Like, is he just... No, that would have definitely been the concept. Okay. That he, this, this troll was, so, so when was, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out the timeline of Anya's creation. So how long ago did you guys think about like, well, she's from Scandinavia around this time. So like, she's going to activate all this like, uh, Norse myth stuff. Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, again, I, I think gradual like a little bit gets laid in in one line here and another line oh wait that troll seemed kind of yeah scandinavian she looks scandinavian okay let's work that <laughs> well, I don't I, remember the order but it wouldn't have yeah. been something where you come in with a big grand plan it would have been a thing where things uh agglomerate uh-huh. yeah because even josh has spoken several times about you know you can't you can't give everyone a backstory to begin with because then you have nothing to use and it's it kind of the first time you did it was with Jenny Callender, you know, and she was there the whole time. She's a techno-pagan. And then, oh, she actually has this huge backstory. And mm-hmm. I even think about how you can't spell out everything with Olaf because you you have to leave room for season seven selfless, right? So it's That's- like you know that they were together, but you can't say the year they were together. Or you can't right. say how many millennia it's been since they've seen each other because you need to keep that open just in case. Exactly. And on this show, we already had that and show where that really was a problem was once upon a time where because you used flashbacks mm. you refrain from having characters in the flashback say too much about actually in either timeline say too much about like what has never happened what will never happen because you never know in a future episode where you're going to need to fill in something else like so we tried after we learned our lesson to have characters never be clear about whether they'd met before Oh. Because they <laughs> a backstory where they actually had crossed before. Right. Um, it's That's a big thing with TV writing, particularly 22-episode traditional network TV writing, where you were shooting as you were writing. Um, mm. You have to keep some things vague so that you can um, play off them later. And that's not so much a trouble in a 10-episode season where you write it all and you shoot it all, because uh, you can, like a novel revise go back to earlier scripts make sure everything all lines up you don't have that luxury if if you hit season 11 and you want these characters to have met before but that was season five nothing you can do yeah 
Right. Battlestar must have been a real nightmare for that. Like, you don't know. You have to be careful about, like, well, could this person still be a Cylon? Did these yeah. people meet 10,000 years ago or didn't they? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was another one. Yeah, where it was very complicated um, and hard hard to keep it all consistent. And, and I mean, this, people delight in finding those things where we miss something and there's just yeah. an impossibility. And it's just like, oh. It's funny, I think, I think about that with comic book writers, because lots of times, and I feel like Anthony, you'll maybe agree with me here, in comic books, lots of times they just have to be like, whatever, we can pretend these people never met, even though they have, because it's like, you know, like, 30 years of history with these characters, um, and sometimes, like, even, and I'm not, like, you know, investigative comic reader, but I'll just be like, oh, but I know that there's no way this could happen with this storyline I read five years ago, or six years ago, but, like, you just kind of have to be like, meh, whatever. Let you just accept right. it. Right. Um, Jane, I've always wanted to tell you this. I don't know how much you know about all the uh, extended Buffy merchandise, but in the Xbox video game, Buffy Chaos Bleeds, where you can play <laughs> Willow, one of the spells that you can use is a ball of sunshine. Really? Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's good. <laughs> I, I always thought that would be such a great weapon. And yeah. we, we, we don't go back to it. And uh, I love that it was used. There's a reason, of course, that we weren't eager to use it, which is that it makes everything much too easy for <laughs> Was Olaf as much fun to write as he seems to be? Yes. That was my favorite thing. All of his dialogue is in all caps, which is <laughs> the only time I ever did that. Uh, love that. And... Um, just yeah, imagining you know, his lines are all short and concise and uh, and shouted, and um, I could not have been happier when we cast Abraham Ben Ruby, who I when I was in college uh, there was a show called Parker Lewis Can't Lose, oh yeah, where he played big high school football star Kubiak, and I loved him and thought he was so amazing, and I was so happy when we got him, and then I got to write for him again on a show that never aired called Star Wars. Wars Detours, where he was our Darth Vader voice. Oh. Um, oh. He was one of our giants uh, from our um, Beanstalk episodes of uh, Once Upon a Time. <laughs> so I've, I've written for him a number of times, and I just think he's the best. That's cool. Um, that must be nice to be able to like write for someone a bunch of times, but like across different things, like in completely oh, different yeah. environments. But like you know how he's gonna act because you know him, like you've worked with him. Um, you know, Armand Shimmerman, Principal Snyder, I'd written for him before as Quark on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Wait, so oh, I, that's uh, right. Yeah. Wait, Jane, you wrote for Deep Space Nine? I wrote yeah. one of them. was a baby freelancer. It was before I'd had any jobs on, on the staff. Wait, so that's Extension, my favorite right? Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yes, somebody... Uh, who? Which of you knew that it was Accession? That's it's it. me. I told you I'm, a, I'm an Espenson super fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the one. Um, it's the one where Cisco has a chance not to be the emissary anymore, right? It's uh... yeah. Oh, wow. That was my pitch. It was uh, they let freelancers come in and pitch, and I said, "What if? What if somebody else showed up and was like, i 'I'm the emissary,' um, and and so I got to write that. And the only thing that stayed of my first draft was all the Quark stuff. Oh, really? <laughs> like stayed verbatim. So, um, uh, so yes, I love getting to write for a different actor or the same actor again. Yeah, you and you and he both have a, a thing for specific. I don't know who, which is it. You that wrote the line that Anya chooses her words a shade too precisely. 
because mm-hmm. that that's that's sort of you too, right? <laughs> and Shimmerman yeah. is a Shakespeare guy, so I'm sure that your voices meld very well. Mm-hmm. Did you have many Snyder scenes? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, Band Candy. Oh right, the flashback yeah. Snyder. That's like, and that's like the most he is in any episode, right? I feel like of all the yeah. Buffy episodes, that's like his most. Yeah, because he's like it's with his... the gang. Yeah. 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 yeah totally. Um. <laughs> That's so funny. Now I feel like I'm like, I didn't do my research properly because I didn't know that you wrote a DS9 episode. (laughs) Yeah, no, you don't need to know that. (laughs) That was way, way, way far back in my past. (laughs) Side note, but uh, Deep Space Nine was my favorite Star Trek iteration, but also I liked it because when I had all my toys, it was very easy to make like a big crossover thing. Like I'd be like, oh, they're just all part of the space station. So they're all together and I can play with them all together. That's right. That was the the thought of oh, a space station will be just as good as a spaceship, maybe even better because it's this crossroads. But <laughs> I don't know. I like a ship. I like being able to take it places. Yeah, well, that's fair. Um, well, back to the Buffy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> While I Star Trek out for a little bit. Um, yeah, where are we in my notes now? I'm like, well, we hmm. t- we're at the Buffy Terra school scene. I don't okay. know if anyone wants anything specific about that. Um, I, I just love it. It's so cute. Yeah, I just like seeing them talk to it. Like in family, there's that great scene where I like it as a scene, but where Buffy and Xander are talking about how they don't really know how to talk to Tara. Like they don't really understand her deal. Like she's super nice, but I don't get her. And it's nice to see Buffy sort of negotiating a way to talk to Tara. She's very gentle with her, which I find very charming. Um, and Tara is so conflict averse that even in describing a conflict, she's trying to downplay the extent of the conflict. Uh, I just yeah. really like it as a beat. And it, of course, it well, ends with that comedy crying, which I think is hilarious. Well, not only is she trying to downplay the conflict because of her own dislike of conflict, Tara is the most empathic of everyone on the show. And she does it because she knows it's upsetting Buffy. So she's really trying to like <laughs> make sure that Buffy doesn't get upset while she tries to just say... Her, she's really trying to tell her the facts. She's reporting to her yeah. and is like, yes, they had a small <laughs> argument, but how do I convey it so that she doesn't think that it's a big thing? Yeah. You know? And she's having to play this job of, like, emotional reporter. Yes, exactly. Very, very good description of that. And um, also one thing I love is that Buffy and Tara don't have a lot of scenes together, and I the next, the next time I remember them being together is also when they are going to a class in Life Serial when Tara tries to get her to go back to school. Yeah. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. I like when people who go to school are actually seen at school talking about school things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, saw, I saw a tweet that was going around, I think I might have retweeted it from Slayerfest, saying like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the only show where they go to school and they're actually doing, they're actually reading. Like every other, right. like, show, they kind of, they're at school, but they're not really, like, doing things, at, like, school things. Um, it's true. Yeah, we did at least nod toward the mechanisms of school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you have long-term plans for Tara? I know that there was some, I've heard there's some talk that she, instead of having her mind taken by Glory, she may have ended up dying in season five. Um did you ever think about like future arcs for Tara that you never got to realize? I don't think so. Again, so much comes from Joss that it would be that those would have been in his head more than ours. Mm-hmm. Was she hard to write? Because she doesn't choose her words as precisely. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. I liked writing Tara. Um, she doesn't. You're right. She doesn't have you know like Anya's got you know verbal tics. Mm-hmm. Real. Like, and I know how to write Anya because no one else can say an Anya line. 
Tara's lines can be a little more generic. You end up do you do end up giving her a lot of exposition. Um, but she's she also does, like as a character not funny. Like that's an established character trait. Is she's not funny. <laughs> she she tells jokes. People are like that's not like right. the eagle reflection joke and like she can't she's, land a joke and that's <laughs> that seems like it would be hard. Well, no, because I think there's a difference between being funny on purpose and being funny by accident. And I think she can be funny by accident. Um, uh, so, yeah, she can't crack a joke. Uh, although she does do the, um, when they're talking about Robo Buffy, she says she practically has made in Japan stamps on her past. <laughs> I'm just um, trying some spicy talk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, and then, and you know, the the first part of that, the the made in Japan is her trying to crack a joke. The second part is her actually being funny. Yeah. The <laughs> is the funnier of those two lines and it's the one where she's not trying to be funny. So I think she gets those and there's it's always at least smile worthy when a character is just thoroughly themselves. Yes. And mm-hmm. so her hesitant gentleness, um, when you when you nail it just right, it it's it's not a joke. It's not laugh out loud funny, but there is a certain warm, humorish satisfaction of just like, oh, that's so her. Well, and mm-hmm. I and I do think. I mean, this might be weird to say, but I feel like also a lot of it comes from Amber Benson. She has such a warm, warm, warmth to her warmthness. <laughs> um, <laughs> she has that to her, and I feel like that lends itself to like, like you said, like there's a difference between being not funny. Like she's she says things that are accidental funny, but she's charming, and I feel like even though she's not as like quick wit as like Buffy or Anya or Willow or Xander, we love her, right? Like she's still written with love, and I feel like the like warmth that comes out of Amber's portrayal like makes you love. Like me and Matthew always say how much we love Tara, and she is. You're right. It's funny because she is so much different from the rest of the group. But like uh, for me, she still fits in perfectly with everyone, and I just, I just love Tara. <laughs> I do too, and yeah, yeah, she's great, and uh, and Amber realized her so beautifully. Yeah. Um, also, Buffy crying, saying like they have a beautiful love. I put in all caps. <laughs> Jane, you monsters! This is how I feel about Willow and Tara and Anya and Xander. A miraculous love. <laughs> Not in my first draft. I believe that was the thing that Joss not only, like, add this. I don't think he told me to add. I think he added that with his own typing fingers. Um, the muffled, <laughs> a muffled against Sarah's shoulder, um, which just cracks me. That really made me laugh when I watched it this yesterday. Uh, love. How, how did you feel about, ri- like, writing, handling Riley's exit? Was it Was it hard to land his arc in season five? Like, how did that conversation sort of emerge? Even just at a timing level, like we had to this I'm just thinking about structuring this and you had to make you had to create a window where it was possible for Riley to break up with her and not seem like a monster because her mother was dying of cancer, right? Like the the season sort of conspires to create this zone where it seems like Joyce will be okay so that Riley can exit and then you pull the rug out from under her again. I guess that's also one reason to make it a comedy mourning for Riley's because Buffy has so much more mourning to do this season. Yes. Absolutely. That's a really good point. And I mean, the Joyce seeming to get well and then dying was very much engineered, but it wasn't engineered uh, to serve any story but itself. That was engineered to 
hurt you, the audience. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> that was engineered so that death wouldn't just be like, oh, yeah, we knew she was getting sick, so of course she died. We wanted that to be a, a painful blindside so that you would share what Buffy was feeling. Um, it was just, you know, the, the, the good luck of TV writing when, you know, you take advantage of something like that and go, oh, well, that gives us a window um, as you're saying, where Riley can dump her. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, that's just fortuitous, I guess is the word where you, you're like, okay, this, this happened and we can use it. Um, and in that sense, it is all engineered. Um, and I think you're right to point out the comedic way in which Sarah cries, because not every actress can do that. And if she had really dived into the darkness in this episode of, of her heartbreak, it would it wouldn't be the right tone and it wouldn't we needed this lightness so that Joyce's death will hit you later. Right. Um, so to be able to find that right comedic tone. And you know, we know from the earlier interaction where Riley says, you think you love me but you really don't like we know that's true. That landed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, we sh- Buffy should have that. She should be heartbroken, but not devastated. Right. It's right. not Angel. It's not. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it's more heartbroken that it's more, more heartbreak about something not working out than devastated about her romantic future. Because yeah. I think at, when something ends like that, you always internalize it and you're kind of like, well, what did I do wrong? Blah, blah, blah. But it's not. You're right. It's not that level of devastation where she's like, "Will I ever love again?" Like, <laughs> exactly. And and O'Reilly was the only one for me. She never says that. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I think. So actually, I'm gonna ask you, Jane. Did you guys? Was it like going into season five? You were like, "Riley's not working. We're getting rid of him." Like, how? Or was like Mark Lucas? He needed. He was like, "I'm de-. like what? What brought about Riley's exit?" In the show. You know, I can't remember anymore how how much we thought, how much we invested in Riley. Mm-hmm. My memory, looking back, is that we needed a rebound guy. We needed a buffer between Angel and whatever came next, which we quickly realized was Spike. Um, and he was ne- Riley was not built to, as as we said on Once Upon a Time, not built to live. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think that. But, you know, it's entirely possible that I am making making a logical story out of events that maybe didn't have that much logic and planning in them. But that's how I remember it, is that, like, oh, yeah, this, this exit was exactly when we sort of expected it would be. Um, Riley was never going to be um, her her ending. I mean... You know, there was points where where it was thought maybe Xander would ultimately be the right man for Buffy, um, but that was that was early days, I think. But I don't think Riley was ever conceived of as as something that like, oh no, he didn't work out. We have to shuffle him off stage. Yeah, he he wasn't able to work out. That's that's mm-hmm. totally fair. I actually say that a lot when we talk about Riley. Like Matthew and I are pretty, I feel like fair with Riley because, and I I think. That's how I've always thought of him, Jane. So thank you for validating me. <laughs> um, I've always thought of him as like, he was the guy she needed. Like he's not the lover of her life, but it was like she needed that boring, whatever, reboundy relationship to get yep. over Angel. 
And yeah. I feel like he served his purpose, right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's what you know, women should do is date all different kinds of guys. And, yeah. and that she did she did it right. She shouldn't, if she'd gone right from, ha, if she'd gone right from Angel to Spike, then Spike might have ended up being a pretty unhealthy relationship for her. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Good thing that didn't happen. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering about the thing you just said about Xander being like end game Xander, which I, I had never even thought about. Um, and I just want, like, this episode has the line pretty soon in their fight where Willow says she's gay now. Um, was there ever any serious consideration of making Xander the gay character instead? I've heard that a few times, sort of in the, I used to, this is very dorky, but I used to work on a Buffy the Vampire Slayer message board in my teens. Uh, <laughs> there was discussion about that. Um, was the gay, I mean, gay now is one of those lines that has, I'm sure to this day, still causes you headaches where people are like, well, was right. is that how she should define herself? Of course, right. it's something that I have definitely said many times. But um, how did that land? How did you think about her as like a as writing a gay character, which obviously you've done many times with great sensitivity? Like she emerges as having her own kind of gay life outside of the Scoobies. Like how did that come about? How did that take shape? You know, it was it was. Very early days, although I'd, I'd, done, I'd written on Ellen before this show, so it wasn't the very beginning of gay characters on TV. But people were, and actual, what you were, how you were supposed to depict gayness was, the rules were a little different then, um, and everyone was finding their way. And yeah, looking back, um, I think we would have phrased some things differently and had maybe a little more enlightened and and maybe a, a little more clarity. I definitely thought I was in love with a lot of yes. uh, women that I ended up <laughs> actually realizing, <laughs> no, I actually am gay now. Like maybe there is something teleological about saying gay now, but like I I do it. Like it's a shorthand that I'd actually I actually recognize in Willow saying it a way that a lot of gay people talk even though it's not actually the way in the same way that a, a trans person I know might say back when I was a boy, even though that's not the like way you usually define yourself. It's like it's just a shorthand people use to talk about their lived experience moving through time, you know? Yes, I think that's a great way to think about it and a great way to phrase it. So it's it's hard to say how that topic would have, should have, could have been handled differently. Uh, I don't remember us ever discussing Xander being gay. I think it, it was always Willow. And yeah, it, it would be interesting to think about how if if we could go back and reapproach these scenes and re-tackle, re-tackle the <laughs> language, um, I'm not entirely sure what we would do. Well, Jane, um, I just I just smiled because I was thinking, well, maybe soon you will. <laughs> well, you know, we'll see we'll see what happens with the reboot. Um, but I mean, it would it's not going to be the same characters. Right. So, yeah. um, but I mean, like, you know, re- revisit that universe with that like speech. You know, um, but I do agree with Anthony. Like, I know that I'll say things like that, too. And I, I do always relate Willow's coming out to mine because I definitely was like, no, I, like, I'm in love with this girl, like, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, dated girls all throughout high school. Didn't even, like, kiss another guy till I was, like, 19. Uh, so, like, I, I definitely, like, use that kind of talk. Uh, like, also, oh, like, at the, at 
okay, like, I get an audience being like, I wish this character was clear about their sexuality, but that's something the characters wish too, right? Like, that actually will be the fight Tara has with her later this season. It's like, well, right. are you going to go back to Boys Town? It's like, that's a real anxiety. That's a real queer experience of, like, is this real or are you just experimenting with me? Or, like, how are you defining yourself? And, like, putting that pressure on someone is unfair, but in a relationship that is moving through time, it is a pressure you eventually have to exert, right? It is an anxiety that you can have. That's true. Matthew, bring us back to the episode. I forget where we are in my notes. We're in the bronze, and just it's the whole the whole bronziness of it oh, all. Oh, yeah. I, I really like... So, Matthew, I feel like you might agree with me, because we've talked about it before. Um... And it's just, like, a funny thing that I always notice, Jane, now that we're watching for the podcast, where it's like, oh, I'm discussing these episodes. Xander often doesn't get a lot of, like, time to spend with, like, other guys, like, just, like, talking about shit. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. And I kind of... And he just lost Riley. Yeah, like... She seems yeah. to be mourning, actually. <laughs> I, you know, I actually enjoyed him and Riley's scenes. Like, I feel like in season four... They yeah, they were really... Yeah, in season four, they didn't get, like, much scenes... They didn't get many scenes together, but in season five... We started to see a friendship, like, in Family, when Riley, like, rides on Xander and is like, oh, how come Xander didn't know that he's a dork? Uh, (laughs) And I kind of really liked that, and I always wished we had gotten a little bit more of Xander and Oz, uh, because I thought they were good foils for each other. Uh, And I enjoy watching, I don't know, I, I, I always... So I'm always torn with my relationship with Spike, because it's like, oh, like, oh, he's unhealthy, blah, 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 but I always think that Xander is... 100% 100% unfair with him. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like, he's still talking to Spike about his relationship troubles, but then is still discrediting Spike when he's like, oh, that happened with Drew. And he's like, yeah, but Drew still was crazy. Like, he can't even <laughs> give him that little bit of, like, leeway. We're like, oh, we're both discussing our relationships. Like, he can't. No, it's true. Xander <laughs> is very hard on Spike. Um, you know, just... And it, it's interesting what what's behind that is it just sort of a like knee jerk he's undead and kind of obnoxious and it but i also feel there's a little bit like and he's so damn cool and handsome <laughs> like, <laughs> like this just isn't fair and you know maybe he already sensed that like he caught buffy's eye mm-hmm. spike did you know that's true yeah um the scene does a good job of catching that same energy from the chocolate box scene where it's like he's like he's not a exactly a bad person. He's just completely amoral when he's like the troll is like trying to find babies like what do you think the hospital like it's just sort of like he just doesn't care. And I think that's such a, a pleasure to watch. Like, <laughs> yeah, I like characters that are that are honest. I'd rather have an honest bad guy than than this than a pretend one. Um and yeah, I love that. The what do you think the hospital is one of my favorite lines. And we also get the um, we learn about his love for the blooming onion, which um, right. which I love. So the the scene yielded a lot of stuff. Uh, it also yields the remodel of the bronze, right? Because you guys trash it in this episode, like the right. Yeah, we bring the balcony down. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you're right. I hadn't remembered that's led to the remodel. Um, uh, is that like we need a new bronze? Is that what it was or? I think that might be right. I have a vague memory of Joss saying, uh, oh, you know what? We're going to redo the bronze, so this could be our chance to justify that. <laughs> it's it's funny because 
I point this out a lot when we're talking about episodes. You guys love breaking shit on set. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a real pleasure to Olaf smashing things in this episode. Just like he's enjoying it and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he smashes really well. <laughs> and like, you uh, know, did you guys know that the hammer would be important later already, or? Oh, maybe not sure. Um, I think we knew, yeah, I think that that might already have been in the air, that that's going to then become, because we make a big deal about that they still have the hammer, and normally you wouldn't do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Normally the hammer would have disappeared with him. So uh, I believe that was already like, oh, good, this will give us a weapon that we can use later. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so- I, just, I also, sorry. No, yeah, go ahead. Two things with Spike. This is the beginning of his obsession with onion blossoms, <laughs> which is great. And also yeah. the moment that I always like think is the, one of the funniest of the episode is when Buffy walks in and he awkwardly walks up to her and introduces himself <laughs> <laughs> for no reason. It always makes me die laughing. I, oh. I also love Willow being like, I wish Buffy was here and Buffy running in, literally saying, <laughs> I'm here. And she's like, I wish I had a million dollars. <laughs> Yeah. In a very unbuffy pan, right? Like that pan to the left doesn't usually yeah. happen on the show. <laughs> no, that's true. And but it it you need it to for the joke. Yeah. <laughs> so l- later on, when you have Willow and Anya back in the shop, and they finally kind of get to tell each other what's been bothering them about each other, it's kind of interesting because you get to write something that is not only the kind of payoff of the episode, but it's the payoff now of Willow and Anya fighting for two years, right? Right, yeah. What was it like to sit down and have to, like, just have them finally not bullshit and say how they feel? Yeah, that's great. And, I mean, Anya's always ready to say how she feels. Um, (laughs) Same. But, yeah, they get to... (laughs) Um, It's clear that they had not... uh, really articulated and understood what was pissing the other person. I don't think they'd understood what was pissing themselves off entirely mm. to the episode when they got to articulate it. Are they friends now? Has anything changed? <laughs> like, I mean, in your head, did you write them differently after this? or? Oh, that's a good question. I, th- I think so. I... I'll answer the question. I, I will personally <laughs> say that I think I think that it's not just this, that if you look at the rest of season five... You have Joyce's death and then Buffy's death. And then afterwards, they all have to take care of Dawn and kind of band together. So I feel like there's just less room for petty squabbling just because of the circumstances also. Like everything becomes so heavy that it's like we don't really get a clean slate to know what their relationship would have looked like anyway. They are all kind of coming together after these tragic events. Mm. Yeah, And there's all still going to be the, just the basic fact that Anya's annoying and Willow's going to go evil. So. <laughs> also <Right>. that. <laughs> um, and, you know, in and, and season seven, Willow does go to her apartment and they do the spell that, quote unquote, got a little sexy. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I always think about that because I'm always like, I think when I watched it when it aired, I was like, oh, look, see, they are friends. Like, it's a first moment of just like them kind of like, you know, no one's, I mean, She's looking for the gang, but it's not like no one's dying. No one's, you know, there's not a fear of death going on. So it's like, okay, they're just like talking, you know? Mm. Good. You found it. You answered the question. (laughs) (laughs) 
I like this scene because it catches them recognizing the danger of each other. Like they both sort of, they're both worried the other one is dangerous, right? right. Like they're both recognizing right. a capacity to damage the world and Xander in particular. And I like that, that they like, they're kind of crossing paths. Willow is gaining power as Anya is sort of coping with its loss and like the threat Willow therefore represents because she, for once in her life, can't just exact vengeance on someone who could potentially harm her. Um, I like that as different as their personalities are, the threat is kind of that they're too similar to each other and they recognize that in each other. Like Willow has been courted by de Hoffren already once and will be again, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. Yeah, I don't know. I, I like that it's like they're just discussing. Willow's like, hey, this is your vengeance demon. This is my concern. And Anya, like you said, Anya's always willing to say how she feels. But we we also don't get a lot of scenes. And I mean, while they're still fighting, it's still like clearly a serious talk that they needed to have, you know, to like both get over the fact that no one's going to harm like Xander, their common denominator. Right. right. Uh, and I kind of like... I say this a lot. I like seeing characters I love on, like, a show with supernatural stuff where it's like, oh, they're just discussing their issues. And I kind of like that in, like, a world where lots of shit is going on. You know, there's a troll on the loose with a giant-ass hammer. But they're, like, sitting there being like, hey, this is how I feel. This is also how I feel. And I like that. <laughs> yeah, I do. And, I mean, if you... it it on Buffy, this wasn't an uncommon kind of scene, but if you know the Bechtel test, how, how rare it is to have two female characters talk. I mean, I guess they're fighting over Xander in a way, but it's, but it is bigger. It, the discussion is bigger than Xander. I mm -hmm. actually wrote down the Bechtel test in my notes because they, they are talking about Xander, but there is a scene earlier where they were not talking about Xander, but I was like, I, I was watching it very, knowing what the episode was about. Like, I wonder if this episode passes the Bechtel test in terms of Anya and Willow. And it was a little thing I went on, a little journey I went on with myself. Um, and it did, because there's another scene. Well, they talk a lot about the price of uh, goods <laughs> and yes, Willow being a true. thief. That is true. <laughs> Um, I actually would like to go through the Buffy episodes and see how many pass a reverse Bechtel test. Are there any scenes of two men talking about something that isn't Buffy? Is it <laughs> is a question I think would be very interesting to try to solve. Like we used to use the phrase reverse Bechtel test a lot at Once Upon a Time, where oh, it really? gets fairy tales having come out of a sort of female oral nursery tradition. Um, don't have a lot of well-defined male characters, so so our show was very heavy on female characters and yeah we would have weeks and weeks and weeks go <laughs> female characters having more than a few words with each other it was always kind of refreshing when we would have a scene with two guys but yeah they were mostly talking about snow white so yeah well uh -huh. even in even this episode xander and spike play pool but they're talking about buffy the whole right. time yeah. so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and even when they're not it's like spike mentions drusilla and xander's still talking about anya like <laughs> Honestly, yep. the only conversation I can think of that's two men not talking about Buffy is Spike and Andrew talking about Blooming Onions. <laughs> oh, I would love it if that's the one scene in the whole in the whole of Buffy canon. Breaks <laughs> <laughs> the reverse spectral test. Weird. Is the Blooming Onion always the site of Spike bonding with another man? Does it ever come up <laughs> that it's not oh, talking? Wow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. That's the only one he knows to connect with another guy. <laughs> there is yeah. something sexual about a blooming onion that maybe he's inviting. 
Oh my god, please cut that. I can't. <laughs> I should go to jail. I'm like literally so mad that you said that. <laughs> I say some audacious things, but that really takes the case. Shakespeare would have loved it. I, hey, whatever. I clutched my pearls a little. I was like, don't say that in front of Jane. <laughs> Jane wrote husbands. She's fine. Okay. <laughs> True. <laughs> like I'm just thinking about like choice of on and bloom and onions and just I can't. Anyway. <laughs> so okay, Buffy obviously defeats the troll because she's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> and troll goes to oh my god, one of my favorite lines in this. I don't know if you if who who wrote it, but one of my favorite lines is about alternate universes, and Willow says that it's trying to hit a bee, hit a dog by throwing a live bee at it. Yeah. That's a good question. Is that in the original one? Because uh, it sounds like me, but it also could be uh, could be not me. It's not in the first draft. Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's me or not, but boy, I love that line. It's so good. And Jane, it's actually funny that you said that, because I, I do think often you and Joss's jokes blend together. Like, uh, a lot of the writers on the show, I, because I'm that person, like, I can be like, oh, that sounds like a joke this person who wrote on the show wrote. Oh, that sounds like something this person on the show wrote. But a lot of times with you and Joss, it's harder for me to tell because you guys have, like, a very similar, like, when you're writing jokes, I feel like it's very similar. Yeah, I think we we do have similar things we like in a joke. David Fury also... Could, the, he wrote the one about I thought I thought the Slayer was a myth while well, you were myth taken, <laughs> <laughs> which is like an iconic line. It's but an even icon- in the even in the course of this podcast, you've like delighted in like a metaphor breaking down on you. So it sounds like your kind of joke. Um, oh, your Wikipedia yeah. has a whole section about your work on metaphors. Could you like explain this to me because I don't understand. Like it's going over my head. So it says oh, it's the so existing- simple. Yeah. yeah, this work I did in grad school, and George Lakoff, who um, is now in the news a lot because he talks a lot about sort of political framing of of dis- of political discussions, um, linguistic framing of political discussions, I guess. Uh, and he's super smart, and he wrote a whole big book about metaphor. And uh, I I became one of his students at Berkeley. And so what I was working on is, or what the way metaphor works is that. As human beings, we often aren't really able to conceptualize a complicated, uh, abstract notion. Uh, like directly. someone descending a troll to an alternate dimension? Like, Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> More like just concepts of, like, oh, emotion. Uh, oh. Emotion is really hard to talk about. So we talk about it as a location. Um, so, you know, you fall in love, right? Um, or you, um, rise rise, rise challenge. Exactly. Um, and, or, you know, you're, you're head over heels or, you know, um, on cloud nine, like, like positive emotions are up and negative emotions are down. Um, but even just if you move someone, that person, if you change some emotionally, we talk about them being moved. Oh. Right? So uh, this is, I, I immediately start thinking about the movie Arrival, where it's like, well, how would a being that has no front or back mm-hmm. think, and it would not have a sense of, like, time, is, is the film's answer, right? Right, exactly. Oh, that, oh my gosh, that, Jean, did you love Arrival? I've always wanted to ask a linguist about Arrival. 
I love Arrival. I love it, the linguistics in it. I think it, the whole thing is absolutely awesome. Um, and yeah, the, also the episode of Star Trek Next Generation. It's all about the species that sort of speaks in almost more like memes. Oh, but, um, the um, Darmok? Is that Darmok, it? yeah. Yeah. Lots of fun linguistic stuff there. But so, you know, I spent grad school yet thinking about metaphor and, um, and how we reveal how we really think about something complicated through our use of little tiny concrete grounded words like up, you know. Um, and so I, I like thinking about that um, as my characters are speaking is, is how can I, what, what little things can I do to indicate what they're really thinking, but not saying. Hmm. Oh. I guess that speaks to Buffy as a structure in general, right? Like the, how do you deal with emotions? You turn them into a troll that you can <laughs> chase with your car, right? And fight in a, in a shop. Inner demons is outer demons. Yes. Hmm. It's very much about taking the metaphorical and making it concrete. Well, isn't isn't even like on some like even theological level like heaven up hell down? Yeah, yeah. And why did that feel natural? Right. Like why why did we conceive of it as those two things? Right. Yeah. And that just comes with our experiences living with creatures with these kinds of bodies on a planet with gravity. Uh, if you are up and moving around, you are healthy. If you are down and lying in the dirt, you are not healthy. <laughs> I love lying in the dirt. So. <laughs> It's great for your skin. <laughs> Where are we in the... Oh, so Buffy kicks his ass. I do really love Willow, Xander, and Anya just standing there watching. They're like, hmm, hmm. And he's like, she's going by the screen, kicking his ass. And Anya yep. saying, you know, we both love you, but not. But Willow doesn't love you in a sexy way because she's gay. <laughs> right. I think that's really cute. And I also, I don't know if this was on purpose, but I kind of like the idea of Anya. Anya kind of doesn't, like get what gay means right like i feel like she's kind of learning because when she's saying oh willow's a threat to her willow has to say hello gay now but also she should know that right like she should know that well, i feel like it's more that she just feels like willow is always going to know xander better and that no matter how many years she has with xander willow will always have like 12 more however many years they were friends right true so she yeah. feels like it's like when you go into when you start dating someone and then you meet their friends for the first time and they have like a million inside jokes and you're kind of sitting there and you're like I don't know what any of these references are and I feel like she just has that feeling that she'll never know Xander as good as she does I think that's true and I also think it's true that like you're saying in this particular exchange the gay now exchange she is sort of revealing that she hadn't thought about it with any more complexity than a <laughs> thousand year old <laughs> Norwegian villager would have brought up. a Norwegian villager <laughs> <laughs> what a well, sentence <laughs> I mean the way Willow conceptualizes sexuality is very 90s too I mean Anya has a different experience of sexuality surely that's so. true <laughs> right. um, uh, that's and... funny because her inability to get references comes up right like she doesn't get the cat in the hat reference yeah. and that is an intense right. frustration for her here <laughs> so she, they sent him to the you know different universe probably the troll universe but maybe not um and amber's delivery of excitement over the world without shrimp is absolutely precious <laughs> um i i love that and that like willow looks at her and she's like i'm allergic like she it's like very tara right because she gets excited and then like goes back 
she's like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm just allergic. Like, she immediately, like, reels it back in because that's so un-Tara, but it still fits with Tara, right? <laughs> yes, that's what I love is when, like I'm saying, the, 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 the come out of her shell moments, like yeah. the, the stamped on the, made in Japan stamped on it. <laughs> yeah, I love those moments where, yeah, she, she lets her enthusiasm pull her out more than she's comfortable with. It's absolutely precious. Um, also, who came up with the... Was it you that came up with the world without shrimp? Because it's in uh, Superstars, the first time it's referenced. So was yeah, that your so idea? That was my idea. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when I had a chance to bring it back here, oh, I couldn't I couldn't run to that fast enough. <laughs> I wish you got a check every time yes. you brought up the world without shrimp. That's what I want for you. Yeah. <laughs> Some sort of character payment from the world without shrimp. <laughs> because they mention an angel too. Illyria brings it up mm-hmm. when she's talking about other like dimensions oh, that she wow. has been to. Yeah, yeah. she yeah. has been to the world without shrimp, and she tired of that one very quickly. This <laughs> <laughs> boring place. You can't get shrimp. <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare, and I'm mad about Tara for being delighted. Like... <laughs> she's allergic, Anthony. Um... Yes. But- just She's because she doesn't her... want cakes and ales doesn't mean the rest of us can't have them. <laughs> uh, um, so the final scene, obviously, is the one where Dawn finds out that she's, uh, well, hears, overhears, basically, that she's not w- what she thinks she is. And I wanted to talk about that decision to have it be the end of an episode and not, like, the final beat before you cut away to a commercial, right? And then you can have the characters immediately discuss it. You can have Dawn barge in and say, what are you talking about? Right. What, what What's behind Dawn eavesdropping and hearing it at the end of an episode beside, as opposed to in the middle of one? Because of exactly what you're saying. Because if you had it in the middle, you'd have to deal with it. And okay. then that, it, there, there's a phrase that's often used in writing rooms about tipping an episode over. And that that's what would happen if I think if, if Don found out any earlier, the episode would tip over and would have to turn into an episode about about that. It's just too big and heavy um, to put in an episode if, if you're going to have to deal with it. It's something that I feel like happens in season five a lot because yes. that's what happens with Joyce's death is that it's at the end yep. of I was made to love you. Yep. And I think about a lot how Buffy was consumed because you know, we were waiting a week each time. And so there's also a lot that's beneficial. I don't think Netflix shows do it as much, you know, because the next episode is coming in 10 seconds. But here it's like, oh, we can actually have the audience talking about Dawn for a whole week or Mm -hmm. wondering what's going to happen for a whole week. Same thing as Buffy walking in at the end of a very light episode of I Was Made to Love You and seeing her mom dead. Yeah, I mean, it's that's a really good point, is that the what is the purpose of a cliffhanger in our new universe where everything is dumped out simultaneously? Um, it, it, it has lost its power, because the power was, oh my God, you have to wait a week to see, to see how what this is going to shake out. Um, but, you know, even on Once Upon a Time, where, you know, sure, it aired once a week, but we know that many more people are going to see the episodes in a format in which they can immediately watch the next one than the amount of people who watch it live. And we still lean into the cliffhanger. There's something so glorious about it. And 
you know, even when I'm watching, you know, I just recently watched every episode of The Americans, like, over a week. Um, and I loved it when there was an episode where it would go, you know, oh, my God, wait, that was the end of the episode. Click, click, click. How do I get the next <laughs> There's still something delightful about that, about the rhythm of the big revelation pause, even if that pause is just a minute to get the next episode up there. Oh, that's, yeah. That's well, it's still also so interesting because a lot of people now are consuming these like in bed at night and it's like 1 a.m. and you're like, I must find out. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to when it was neatly in the nine o'clock time slot and you could like maybe attempt to go to bed after finding <laughs> out. <laughs> that's true i mean this is what makes what makes potato chips is that you you got to have that next one yeah dawn is a potato chip is the is this is the thesis here <laughs> you need a title for this podcast episode <laughs> <laughs> i just want to ask in case you're not back in season five about what it was like writing Joyce's exit because you do like you just talked about I was made to love you you you're like you wrote her last scenes alive basically um, I, huh. that's like, a good way to phrase it because the last scene I think is the one where she says she left her bra on the dessert cart yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> which no. is so sad it makes me so like it feel like Joyce being playful and like teasing her daughter like it gives me the worst feeling <laughs> <laughs> That's so sad. Um, yeah, I was about to correct you because I thought you were about to say that I wrote the scene where she dies because it's at the end of that episode. But in fact, Joss wrote that scene. He was very clear when he handed me um, I Was Made to Love You that um, he was like, don't think you're really going to be writing that scene where <laughs> I will be writing that. And I gave it a try. I was like, well, I'm not going to not write a scene. So I wrote my version of it. And then, of course, I don't think Joss even read it. Joss wrote his own. <laughs> he wanted to. Um, but what I find amusing is that I think everyone can sense that the body really starts mm -hmm. at the end of that episode because nobody ever says, nobody ever tries to credit me with, you killed Joyce. <laughs> right. Um, no, I get every other character I've killed. People are all over. You killed <laughs> Cat on um, Battlestar or whatever. Um, <laughs> people definitely remember who I killed. But no one ever gives me credit for Joyce because they know that, yeah. that's, not, that that's not me at the end of that episode. You can tell that's Joss starting the body. How did it feel watching that? freight train sort of start rolling by like watching this arc taking shape like helping because your scenes with Joyce are so they're in the same way as the Tara scenes like Joyce is not a character who leans easily into comedy and when she does it's quite gentle but your voice for Joyce is so like so mom right like I, she talks like a mom in a way I find really charming like how is it how was it like saying goodbye to her as a character Oh, the, my favorite Joyce moment is in Band Candy where she goes, screw you, Buffy. <laughs> 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 uh, so I got to, and I got to, um, all that Band Candy stuff, I really got to dig into teenage Joyce. That was my first real Joyce was writing that episode. Um, so I always feel like, um, like that was my first Joyce, was young Joyce. Um, oh, terribly sad. Um, but of course, it's always mitigated a little bit when you're really there with the real people because you know Christine's fine and mm -hmm. she's moving. You know she was moving to Italy and it was like she's she's happy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know uh, I, I'm always kind of amazed when 
think some some writers are really able to dig into the grief in a way that makes it very, 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 very real for them. And I can do that in the moment when I'm writing the script, but the second I look up from it, it's like, oh, no, right, Christine's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I just wanted to, I did want to talk a little bit about, before we end, uh, mapping out season five. Because season five seems to be um, the season that has, like, the, like, you clearly all, like, you guys were moving the pieces in the beginning. Glory is the first big bad that's introduced, like, fairly early on. Um, and, you know, we, we get her sporadically at first, and then it's, like, nothing but that story. And that's what I love about this season. Uh, what was that like in season five, like, mapping that out? Again, maps... Joss is the map maker, so um, there is very little of that. Um, you know, generally, and, and Buffy followed this pattern. There are meetings at the beginning of the season on Buffy. They were often uh, during hiatus, um, where you would, where that map would get made. Um, and I always feel like Joss had a much clearer picture of it than the rest of us. But we would discuss broad strokes. This is, these are the things that will happen this year. Um, these are sort of when we think they will happen. A pro, a right around here, this will happen. Right around here, this will happen. Um, so we knew the big, the big broad strokes of it from the beginning. Um, and that all happens in this very compressed period of time in just a couple weeks during hiatus when it's, when it's all mapped out. Hmm. Hmm. Um, what's something that you would have liked to do in season five that you didn't get to do? Oh, Wow. <laughs> um nothing comes to mind i i mean it was just being the show was such a satisfying thing where you generally um got to got to write the best possible story with the best possible people fair all right um all right are we at the end matthew i think we are yeah we are uh favorite outfit of the episode jane oh my god goodness oh what a good question um i just watched it last night it was uh joyce back in her little mom's oh, sweater oh no because <laughs> i was particularly noticing her clothes like you got out of the bathroom and you're just you're back in mom wear yep oh. um anthony um the wimple, I think, or uh, I really don't understand and therefore really love Buffy's subsequent outfit in that scene. It's like this shimmering magenta disco number, and her yeah, hair like is satin. Yeah, and the big hoops, and it's just like, I, I don't know hoops. why that's her outfit, but I'm entranced. So. <laughs> Matthew? Anya's purple and pink polka dot top is so chic. Hmm. And the cut of it and everything. I, I mean, I'm glad she was in it the whole episode because I was just loving it on her. That was good. I agree. I, I like that. I actually, I put it as a three-way tie. I think Anya, Willow, and Tara's outfit outfits throughout are like pretty iconic. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, Willow's outfit feels a little unWillow, but I kind of like that because it's like well, a, the denim jacket and choker combo is really cute on her. Right, it is, and I, she gets her new hair that's like. Oh, her hair is so good. Yeah. Love I hair. love that. This hair. is like one of my favorite Willow hairs, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. that really works for her. Um, favorite scene, Anthony? 
My favorite scene is one we didn't even talk about, and I adore it so much, is the car scene where they're chasing <laughs> Olaf and Anya reveals that she doesn't know how to drive. Uh, and <laughs> her, the, I don't know if it's scripted or just Emma Caulfield, but her delight at like learning the basic mechanics of how a car works and like Willow like losing pages out of her spell book as they're discussing their like relationship woes, I think is just the scene, a kind of scene that only Buffy could have. And is so funny and so good, and I, it's my one of my favorite scenes on the whole show. I think. I love that one too. And in my first draft, she loses a whole book out the window. Oh. <laughs> but no, I agree. I like Anya learning how to drive a car as she's driving a car. That's well. It's funny because a little detour here. What of us? Who of the Scoobies can drive? Right. Because Buffy can't. Like they very Buffy much. Buffy has a license, but she can't. But she did, she's not good at it. Yeah. Um, and, like, the only ones we see drive, like, actually in a car, in the front seat, not just, like, talking about going somewhere, are Xander and Giles, I think? Yeah. Um, I think Spike drives Giles's car when right. Giles is a demon. Right. A well, man. he also drives back to Sunnydale right. when he runs into the signpost. I meant, I meant more of, like, the, like, <laughs> of the group that we see at the Magic Box often. Right. So, like, right? I don't know that Buffy and Willow... Do we ever see them driving? Well, I mean, Willow can't the drive show is a queer can. metaphor, and yeah, gay people can't drive. So. <laughs> gay people can't drive, so that's why Willow and Tara don't drive. Excuse me, I can drive. <laughs> um, I don't know if Jane, if Jane knows that gay people can't drive is a meme on the internet right now. <laughs> I did not know that, it but it, it does explain Willow and Tara. That's a very good... <laughs> um, all right, so... Jane, what's your favorite scene? Uh, I was going to say the Bloom and Onion scene, but I was I was sort of also thinking of the car scene because I love that so much. I loved car driving scenes. The scene you're talking about with Spike driving Giles' car in a new man is also one of my all-time favorite scenes. There's something... <laughs> because we had a lot of those car scenes, even though our characters don't drive. Um, and oh, that's they right. Also, that's for episode two. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the episode, and there's also one is it, I don't remember which episode it's in, where Giles is driving Buffy and it's a little BMW and she says, "Ultimate driving machine, my ass." <laughs> <laughs> well, you also have a lot of driving scenes in Band Candy. Yeah, tons of driving in Band Candy. Um, love a driving scene because it, there's the the urgency. Well, there's literal forward momentum. Yes, exactly. Those scenes always feel very energetic and fun to me. Um, Matthew, your favorite scene? I I was also going to say the car scene. Well, I will say the first like lo longer scene of Willow and Anya arguing is my favorite. Um, yeah, I think about that scene a lot, uh, like in reference to season five and like Willow and Anya's relationship. Um, so, we're at the end, we'll all grade the episode, just because that's what we normally do. We're probably all going to grade it the same. Uh, Matthew, what grade do you give it? Oh, I give it an A. I love this episode. Uh, Anthony. Uh, I, 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 A plus. This is, I literally show this episode to people who are like, I'm trying to convince that Buffy the Vampire Slayer is something they should watch, and it's always either this one or Earshot, where it's like, look, look what it can do. Like, look at how many registers, how many colors it can play in. 
Um, and that like that car scene is the perfect to me example of what Buffy can do that nothing else can do. Like that's the the bandwidth it gets to play with is amazing to me. So <laughs> I also give it an A. Jane, what grade do you give your episode? <laughs> I like it. I give it an A. I'm Yay. not gonna hide my light under a bushel. This is a this one's a winner. They aren't all winners, but I like this one. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for being on again, Jane. Um, you're a delight. Uh, thank you so much. You make me feel very good sitting here hearing good things about myself. <laughs> um, Anthony, thank you also for joining us. Oh, always a pleasure. And Thanks, particularly Anthony. this time, it's such a, a, honestly, it's like, I'm, I'm in a little bit of shock. Just, it's lovely to meet a hero of mine. So thank Aww. you so much. Um, and thank you guys for listening. If you like us, feel free to rate us and subscribe to us on iTunes. We are on Google Play. We are on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Um, and if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at SlayerFestX98. And if you want to find me anywhere on the internet, I am at IanXCarlos. Matthew? And you can find me on Twitter at Matthew Rodriguez. Matthew with one T, Rodriguez with a G and a Z. And uh, Anthony, where can people find you? Oh, I'm at uh, Mia Koopa. And Jane? I'm at Jane Espenson. Yay. All right, guys, thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. 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 <laughs>